0: everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Lens, Historians in Popular Media. I'm Garrett Wright.
1: And I'm Emma Rothberg.
0: And we're very excited to be joined today by our colleague Craig Gill, a PhD candidate in the Department of History at UNC Chapel Hill. Hi, Craig. Hi,
2: how's it going?
1: We're really excited to talk to you about The Legend of Bagger Vance, a movie from 2000 that at least I had a lot of questions about after watching. <laughs> So Craig, could you tell us a little bit about your research?
2: Yeah, so I'm interested in African-American golf caddies in the U.S. South. This was a project that I actually got into through this movie. I did my master's uh, in American studies at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And I guess it's kind of cliche that the Scottish guy in the department has to study golf, but that's just what it is. And um, so, yeah, I, I did a class there on interwar American culture and one of the was to find a a piece of culture produced after the interwar years that depicted the interwar years. Um, I chose The Legend of Bagger Vance because it's set in starting in 28 up to through the Great Depression. And it depicts African-American golf caddies in some interesting ways that I'm sure we'll get into. Um, And I realised that no one really had discussed this before in, in much of the literature. There's a few sociology articles. But not much written by historians, Uh, and despite a sort of surge of historians who were interested in black golf, there wasn't much interested in uh, African American golf caddies. So yeah, I I look at these caddies as a unique group of workers, the sort of intersection of leisure and labour, they don't fit the stereotype of agricultural workers in the south, which is common at the time, and they're working in a place where the chief purpose is play, um, which makes for an interesting dynamic.
1: So for people who haven't seen the film, can you give a brief overview of its plot? So the movie,
2: like I said, it's it's set in, in 1928 to begin with. And Charlize Theron's character, Adele Invergordon, her father, builds a, a golf resort in Savannah, Georgia in 1928 is sort of a, was a common thing that was happening at the time. Golf really started in, in the States in the late 19th century particularly up north with areas around Boston and New York. Uh, And then it it, it came south with both people moving down south and with, as as tourists ventured south for for a number of reasons, they came with the expectation of playing golf like they do in the summer up north. So then places like Pinehurst down to West Palm Beach, Florida, became places where golf was, was played and resorts were built. And so this movie is sort of in that scope of events. And so this golf course gets built in the movie, and the depression hits, and the golf course is losing money. Adele Invergordon's father ends up taking his own life, and Adele Invergordon is left with the the problem of of this golf course. So she comes up with this plan to invite famous golfers Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen, who are real life professional golfers of the of the era, to come and play in an exhibition match. And this was something that Jones and Hagen both did uh, throughout the twenties and thirties. But the the local establishment, the people who are interested in, in Savannah and keeping Savannah Prosperous felt they needed a a, su- a real southern um, competitor in it, so they they advocated for including Matt Damon's character, Ranald Juna, who's a Savannah native and was experiencing post traumatic stress disorder after his uh, service during World War One. Prior to that, he was supposedly a, a great golfer. He is a, he's a he's a fictional character. And in the end, he gets convinced to play for a number of reasons, one of which is mystical caddy comes to him in the night as he's trying to find his golf swing. And he convinces him of how he can get his golf swing back. And that caddy is played by uh, Will Smith, and his name is Bagger Vance. And so Bagger Vance becomes both his golf caddy and his spiritual consultant who helps him not only find his swing, but find his sort of authentic self and helps him through the sort of trauma that he's experiencing. And he plays in this $10,000 exhibition match. And on the 18th hole, Bagger Vance realizes that all the work that he has done has been worthwhile. And Ranulph Juno has, has overcome his obstacles and Bagger walks off into the, into the night, down the coast, never to be seen again, completing a character arc, which was really non-existent the entire way along, that he comes in with no backstory um, and he departs with no sort of end in sight for Bagger Vance.
0: What do you make of that lack of story for Bagger Vance as somebody who studies African-American golf caddies?
2: So this is one of the stereotypical examples of the magical Negro, which was the trope that a bunch of people pointed out in the in the early two thousands movies like this um, Green Mile, which had just come out a year previous, and there's there's a bunch more that came out a few years after this. It's a character trope which is offensive to African Americans at, at present day and at the time because it insinuates there's nothing interesting in their story, and um, that they're only there to serve the white man, and it really just downplays any any important backstory or or future that they might have.
0: So Bagger Vance isn't a character in his own right. He's only there to fulfill um, Matt Damon's character's narrative.
2: Yeah, we learn nothing about where he's come from or where he's going. Um, has no real character development himself throughout the movie. He's only there to fulfill Matt Damon's narrative and to, to provide a sort of a spiritual guide for Matt Damon.
1: So, as you said, this this kind of magical Negro trope is you know, offensive, problematic for for all the reasons that you've mentioned. How does it match up with the kind of historical reality that you look at?
2: Yeah, so I think that's one of the interesting things is that the producers of this movie or the directors of this movie, uh, the book that this movie was based off, inadvertently sort of spoke to some of the truths of the time. A lot of this industry came from northern tourists who were coming down to the south. And as they came to the south, they came with the expectation that black caddies would be there waiting for them and would and be there to facilitate every every need that they have. Advertising at golf resorts around the South in national periodicals, in newspapers, were opposing this idea and, and, and showing black caddies to be servile, docile workers who'd be there, who would have a smile on their face, have a witty retort, completely inoffensive black workers.
0: You've talked a little bit so far about how the story of Bagger Vance and the actual history of these southern golf resorts is really fueled by northern tourists going south. Could you talk a little bit about why, other than these expectations of black caddies, why the south was such a such an interesting destination for northern tourists?
2: Yeah, so... Um, especially with some of the areas that I focus on, uh, Pinehurst, North Carolina being one of them, That Pinehurst was opened by a northerner, James Walker Tufts, in 1895. With the original intention of being a health resort, at the same time the the southern resorts were places where the weather was nice and in the winter. You could actually play golf, but it was also part of this culture of of reconciliation between the north and the south that a lot of historians have pointed to, and and this idea of of northerners wanting to come and see the south as the old south, um, and reconciling the ideas of. Of the north and south being together as one after the civil war and this is certainly the case with the golf courses um clubhouses were designed using plantation architecture the in the advertising caddies are often seen on porch scenes all of which sort of pointed to a sort of plantation culture in which the the black caddies were part of the landscape and so yeah northern tourists came down with this expectation of coming to the south as a sort of fantasy land where they could both enjoy nice weather, enjoy health potential health benefits, but see the South as a sort of historic South rather than something that was that was new for them. I think a lot of that is also rooted in the fact that some of the popular culture of the nineteen tens and twenties, things like *Birth of a Nation*, which um, movie released in, in the nineteen tens, pointed to um, black criminality, and there was an idea of, of black criminality in northern cities that white Northerners were um quite convinced of and then they would they would come down to the south with this expectation of finding a sort of a pre-modern south where black caddies were servile docile
0: I think that's really interesting so I'm i I'm a Native American historian and um I'm teaching a class on pop culture right now but I've been thinking a lot about like Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows mm-hmm. which were popular maybe a little bit before this time period but still it seems like there's a a general trend maybe in American popular culture to portray the American past in a kind of sanitized way through these sites of leisure. So in Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows, you had real Native American actors, but they were kind of performing these roles, but written by Buffalo Bill and other white men and kind of portrayed as a safe space to see the the history of the West as like a sanitized place.
1: So from what you're describing, Craig, it to me, it kind of sounds like these these golf courses and the ways in which they were th- their promoters were advertising the kind of Southern leisure fits in with a lost cause type promotion.
2: Yeah, I, I, would, I would definitely say so. And we see that a lot in this movie as well. Charlize Theron's character, she's trying to drum up interest for this event. She goes to visit Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen to try and convince them of this. And... She talks a lot about the problems in the South since the war between the states, as she calls it. The way that they promoted caddies as central to the experience is certainly part of that. As I said in the advertisements, caddies caddies were there the entire time. And if you look at some of the advertisements from the start of these resorts... Uh, the caddies don't play much of a role. As you get to the 1920s, they they seem to be central to the experience of going south. And part of that is this retelling of history of American South that was going on at the time In the Lost Cause narrative, as you said, where caddies were seen as a sort of symbol for the enslaved workers, and they were they're being uh, repurposed as a sort of well-treated, um, happy, uh, smiling always in these advertising and and just workers who are happy to be there. Um, which it certainly fits in with the the paternalistic lost cause narrative, which showed the South as something that was very different to the material conditions of antebellum slavery. That's not to say that these caddies were treated in the same way that slaves in antebellum slavery were, rather to say that they were used as symbols for the lost cause movement.
1: Yeah, and The, the Legend of Bagger Vance, the film itself, I was noticing when I was watching it that... There are a lot of these kind of little hints, and I don't know if they were purposeful or not, but Matt Damon's character is called a chevalier. Confederate as a knight was very prevalent for lost cause rhetoric. They play Dixie at one point, when Charlie Theron's character is going to try and drum up support for this.
2: Savannah Establishment seem to say that Bobby Jones doesn't count as a true Southerner because he's from Atlanta, which is obviously a city that is built in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, whereas Savannah is steeped in... Uh, antebellum era history and slavery
0: i think it's really interesting what you talked about you know in your own work about the advertisements for these these golf courses portraying black caddies as kind of passive happy to to assist could you speak a little bit about how bagger vance himself is portrayed in the film as a caddy
2: yeah so in the movie he when he shows up ran off Matt Damon's character is hitting golf balls into the dark, and Bagger Vance steps up and gives him a couple of tips. Ronald Juna seems unconvinced of his ability to help. Bagger Vance himself hits a couple of shots perfectly into the distance. And that wouldn't have been uncommon of the time. African-American caddies often practiced golfing as a means of of getting better at caddying. They they used their leisure time to improve their own labour skills. At places like Pinehurst, there was small courses that were built just for the caddies to play. Um, or the caddies built their own courses to play. Monday afternoons were often the time where caddies were allowed to play the course while course maintenance was happening. Caddies themselves were building up knowledge of how the game worked, learning the courses that they were caddying on, so that they could help with guiding their employee, the player through their own game, understanding the distances of the course, the way the, uh, the ball rolls in the grass, all these really uh, important skills um, which made up their, their, their job. But one of the things that is interesting in the movie is that um, Bagger Vance's his skills are portrayed as innate and and not learned. At one point, he's portrayed walking walking around in bare feet. The narrator of the movie says that Bagger Vance walked the golf course but didn't write a single thing down. He he knew it all, and this is sort of um, indicative of the the idea that the the African American caddies. Did not learn their skills they were sort of either part of the landscape and innate um, or they were useless as caddies it certainly was a way in which their their own skills were devalued
0: i mean that's interesting because if you think about these golf resorts as sites of not just leisure but also profit for the people who own them it's almost like it's erasing the fundamental foundational role of black americans in creating that profit of the resorts. So I'm like thinking about our own university's current initiative to reckon with the role of slavery and its construction. And so it's just interesting to see that kind of same narrative play out in the history of golf. It brings me to a broader question about race. So how does, we've been talking a lot about how obviously the history of golf and leisure is tied up in ideologies regarding race, like the lost cause, how does Bagger Vance, the film, deal with race?
2: So it doesn't. It Throughout the movie, there aren't many black characters. They're on the street in Savannah. They're not in the crowd at the golf course. But there's two black characters throughout Bagger Vance who's Juno's caddy and uh, the unnamed caddy for Bobby Jones. And for some reason that seems unclear, uh, Walter Hagen's caddy is not from the South. The movie makers, for whatever reason, chose not to mention race at all. And I think that is sort of indicative of the time that the movie was made. I think the sort of post-racial society, colorblind rhetoric that was being used by politicians and a lot of people in, in popular culture at the time is certainly quite obvious in this movie that this is a a place where it's the Jim Crow South in 1928, Races overwhelmingly important, yet in this movie there's there's no real discussion of it whatsoever. It's there in everything but it's not mentioned once.
1: So you mentioned how there's kind of post-race moment in pop culture. Is there a post-race moment that's happening in golf around 2000 that this movie is potentially tapping into?
2: Yeah, so this movie gets made in 2000, three years after Tiger Woods broke onto the scene. And Tiger Woods himself in an interview with Oprah Winfrey claimed that he was... Cablin Asian, which is a person who's Caucasian, Black, American Indian, and Asian. He had his own reasons for 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 doing that. It's this sort of late nineties, early two thousands moment in sport as well, where people like Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods are refusing to uh, or or choose not to speak about race, and it's sort of enshrined in the colorblindness of the moment. So we've been talking about
0: golf and caddies in the American South, but you know, you've mentioned Northern tourists going South to play golf with these expectations regarding race. What was golf and especially caddying like in the North at this time period?
2: Yeah, so it, it's very different. Caddying in the North was seen as a as a job for children. It was a job that, that was for, for white uh, kids and ended at the age of 18. Primary documents I've looked at say that a, the caddying is a job for a child. And obviously that same rhetoric and same belief didn't develop in the South, where Black adults were the primary caddies. But people like Walter Hagen, who's depicted in the movie, grew up caddying from as young as the age of eight until they turned 18. And it was seen as a way for young people to make business connections. Um, obviously the people who play golf in the north at this time are generally the elites and, and the wealthy in society. And so caddying in the north was actually not only a way for kids to make money in the summer, but a way to make business connections and to perhaps end up with a career in finance or or, or other industries like that.
1: So is this kind of reality of caddying in the North, is that why in The Legend of Bagger Vance, the film, you have the character of or Hardy Greaves mm-hmm. who kind of tags along with Matt Damon and Will Smith's characters until he actually takes over the caddying by the 18th hole? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think that, that that's certainly part of it. There's two sort of images of a caddy at the time. And one is the, the white school kid and the other is the, the, the black southerner. As, as I said, with the white school kids who then gave up at 18 and went on to um, whatever careers, that option was not really there for black southerners who caddied. Um, I know at places like Pinehurst, they, there was caddies as young as eight and as old as eight to eight times. It was a career rather than simply a, a, a summer job. But in the same sense, in in, in the South, I, I don't think there would have been very many white school children caddying. Um, I think the, a distinction that the caddies should be black was, was quite common in the South. I know that Clifford Roberts, who was the um, chairman of Augusta National Golf Club, there's some doubt whether he said this or not, but it's a very famous and widely quoted. He said that as long as I live, the players will be white and the caddies will be black. And I think that was quite a universal ideology in the South for for golf.
1: When did he say that? Um,
2: Supposedly I'm unsure when he said it But he uh, Passed away in the In the 1970s I think And Augusta National Had exclusively black caddies Until around the the 1980s I think And it wasn't until 1983 that Augusta National stopped enforcing the rule that touring professionals had to use the the local black caddies um, as their caddies for the tournament.
0: So as a historian of the West,
2: myself,
0: and we talked a little bit about kind of representations of the West through popular culture and leisure. I'm curious how all of this that we've been talking about plays out farther west in places where you don't have this long history of plantation slavery, where the United States has not been a presence in some places for very long at all, much less centuries. So could you speak a little bit about how golf and caddying plays out in states farther west?
2: It's less of my expertise, but I've found many examples of uh, courses in the west where Native Americans were used as caddies um, and often... Instructed to wear what was the prescribed Native American garb as part of a sort of tourist experience there at the same time. I've seen articles that discuss golf in Hawaii in similar terms with a white perception of, of what islander culture was and um, having Hawaiian children caddy for you there. And it's sort of a, a strange sort of expectation that came with, with golfing wherever you were, that the caddies would somehow represent the past in the place being from Scotland, I see a lot of it as well with when people at the time talked about their vacations to Scotland, they would talk about the witty, drunken jock caddy. So I think in, in some places it, it's more innocent than in others, but it, I think the American examples are, are pretty troubling in the South and the West.
0: So That's interesting that in multiple regions, the performance of caddying has something to do with a particular representation of the past. <laughs> do you think that that comes into play at all in those Northern caddies that you were talking? about?
2: No, I don't think so at all. I think that particularly a a tourist experience. And that's not to say that um, people weren't golfing in the South who lived in the South. They just had different sets of expectations that were sort of enshrined in their own understanding of how Jim Crow worked. And that was not an experience that needed to be novel for them because it was how how they existed. Whereas I think in the North, this was just uh, schoolboy caddies were just there as, as someone to carry the bag and do do the job. Whereas the experience while being a tourist is certainly uh, what made it so uh, so prominent in the South and the West and in Scotland and
1: Hawaii and wherever else. So what about the experience of being a caddy today uh, does any of these these historical trends that you've been talking about carry over into the contemporary golf moment
2: by the 1960s, there's a huge spanner in the works for professional caddies, which is the golf cart, which obviously can't do the same things that a caddy can in terms of telling you the way of the land or the, um, the distance from yourself to the green or the how far you need to hit the shot to cover the bunker. So it was a way that golf clubs could reduce their costs and make more money from golfers. If they owned the golf carts, then the, the money for the person or the thing that's carrying your bag went straight to the golf club. That didn't happen with Caddies who were carrying your bag, they would be paid by the by the by the player to the caddy rather than um, to the club, as as happens with a golf cart. So that that's the way that they kept money within the within the golf club. These cars spread like wildfire, and caddying as a as a trade sort of disappeared for a lot of places. Um, only at the most sort of elite golf courses or the golf courses where people are really going for an experience did caddies stay because people are paying a lot of money and they wanted to. Really get a full experience of with knowledge local knowledge of the course but also where the job did exist was still in the professional ranks of the game and it became a job in the in the 60s and 70s it predominantly became a white job as black caddies were, were sort of forced out especially in the professional game where professional golfers began uh using their friends as their caddies or, or or people they grew up playing with and this happened to coincide with a time where golf but professional golf especially became lucrative in the decades of the first half of the 20th century black caddies were the the rule in the south and then by the time that it became a lucrative job white caddies were were more prominent. And this had a number of implications. People have pointed to this as one of the reasons why today professional golf has very few African-American golfers. There was a lot more African-American players in the mid-60s uh, in professional golf than there is today. And that's partly because access to golf is so difficult today. It's an exceedingly expensive sport to play in the United States. Whereas in the past, if, if someone was caddying, they can, they can play the course on a, on a Monday afternoon um, and learn the game that way and then get into the professional ranks through that. Whereas that's a, a route to, to professional golf and to just the playing of golf in general that isn't open to a lot of people who are who don't have the finances to, to join clubs and buy the expensive
1: gear. I think it's also interesting you're talking about how the emergence of the golf cart replaces really the, the African-American caddy. And to think about another stereotype of African-Americans as, as the kind of the brute strength. Mm-hmm. As soon as you don't need a person to carry your bag, you start, you have a, a machine that you start thinking about the caddy in a different light. They're not they're not a schlepper, they are someone who is your confidant, is your friend, in a way that Bagger Vance is is depicted for Randolph Juno in the film.
2: That also plays to, to another interesting historiographical trend, which uh, Greta de Jong in her um, recent book, You Can't Eat Freedom, discussed the mechanization of agriculture in the South. And she pointed to this this time period in the 50s and 60s, especially as, as African-Americans began gaining voting rights, then that was what initiated the trend of mechanization because the white wealthy elites in the South realized that they could no longer control black voting populations. They wanted to mechanize and enforce Uh, out-migration of African-Americans. And this just happens to be coinciding with the time where the golf cart comes in. Places like Pinehurst, which previously had 500 black uh, caddies and their families living in Taylor Town right next to it, that uh job force is no longer there and then there's a migration from these places said
0: that players were the ones who paid caddies and i don't know maybe it's just my own ignorance i i expected that not to be the case so could you just talk a little bit about the logistics of hiring and payment for caddies did they have any association with these resorts or was it strictly an interpersonal hire
2: I think it varied club to club, but I do know that um, a lot of the clubs shared their practices. I've seen letters sent from places in North Carolina to Florida, all asking if they, if their practices were were similar. But I know at um, Pinehurst, the caddies would show up in the morning and they would report to the caddy master and they would line up and amateurs who were just wanting to play their round would come and uh, request a caddy. And then the first person in line would go and uh, carry that person's bag and and be their caddy for the day. And they would be paid by the player. So it was certainly a, a relationship that was customer to employee. The resorts and the golf clubs, they had lists of who the caddies were and they knew who was good and who was bad. The caddy master would dictate which caddies went where. But the money went always from the, the, the player to the the caddy, which in a way is sort of a, an early sort of gig economy where these caddies have no sense of security. One day they might have a hire, the next day they might not. When the depression rolls around, there's going to be a lot less bags for them to carry. It's interesting in, in the census they're listed not as caddies often, but um, as day labourers in the industry of odd jobs. These caddies define themselves as caddies, especially uh, during the winter months when the tourists were, were coming to the south, but they, were, they would do other things to supplement their income in the same way that gig workers might in the, in the current economy.
1: And on that note, thank you, Craig, so much for being here on the podcast with us. I know I learned a lot. It was fascinating.
0: I did too. Thanks, Craig.
1: Thanks for having me. So stay tuned for more episodes of The Lens.